Welcome to Two Guys in the Bible, conversation on theology, culture, and God's Word. My name is Eric Leupold, and I'm joined as always by my illustrious co-host, Dylan Keniston. Uh, Dylan, how are you this afternoon? Doing well this afternoon, brother man. How are you doing? Oh man, I'm doing great. I'm doing real real well. And I'm also excited. Uh, today, it's not two guys in a Bible. It's, it's three guys, because we have a special guest on the show today, uh, R.C. Sproul Jr., uh, is joining us from the great state of Indiana, uh, and he is a sinner saved by grace like the rest of us, praise the Lord. He holds a uh, doctorate in ministry uh, from Whitefield Theological Seminary, served as a pastor, professor, conference speaker, and a writer, and he and his wife Lisa have been blessed with 13 children. Praise the Lord, by the way, on that. Mm. R.C., yes. praise the Lord. Many arrows in the quiver. <laughs> <laughs> praise God, man. Yeah. Yeah. So, and he's uh, and he writes and produces a podcast for JesusChangesEverything.com. So, R. Spree, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be with you. Yeah, yeah. So, just before we get going, I mean, raising thirteen children, uh, pretty busy, I take it. Absolutely busy. Uh, at this point, uh, many of them are are grown and out of the house. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're no longer uh, require work and, and energy <laughs> and uh, prayer time, etc. Uh, absolutely, it's busy, but it's busy, uh, and you know, engaging with uh, that which lasts forever. So it it, it matters. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Any any grandchildren yet? Eight grandchildren so Eight. far. Man, praise Amen. the Lord for that. That's awesome. Man, that's a that's gonna be some big family get-togethers. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, for those of of you listening, uh, RC has joined us today to discuss uh, a new book coming out um, that uh, that he recently wrote, and it should be out uh, real soon, if not already. Uh, it's called Growing Up with R.C., uh, The Truths I Learned About Grace, Redemption, and the Holiness of God. Um, and uh, we wanted to ask R.C. about the book. He graciously sent it to us. Uh, Dylan and I had a chance to look through it. Uh, was really blessed by it. And so we wanted to just, uh, uh, share that with our, with you, our listeners today, uh, some of our thoughts on it. Uh, so to to just basically start it off, uh, RC, uh, please t- tell us why you wrote the book and what led you to want to share these stories and lessons uh, that you learned from your father. Well, you know, all all of my uh, adult life, anyway, when I when I met people who were familiar with my father. Uh, and by the way, this morning I was in a, a, a meeting at church uh, and introduced myself, and half the people in the room uh, asked if I had any relationship with R.C. Sproul. So, <laughs> Wait, what? Uh, <laughs> I always remind people, the world's full of people who know of him but don't know of me. Um, but, oh. you know, they, they want to know when they meet me what it was like, and I can see the, the gears grinding in their heads as they're imagining uh, life with this theologian. And I've always wanted to... Uh, you know, had the opportunity to honor him, not just for what everybody else knows, but for what people don't know. And, mm-hmm. and what I valued more than anything else was was not uh, his theological brilliance, though I did value that, and it wasn't his ability to communicate, though I did value that. But I wanted to to be able to take something that people think they know and show them uh, something a little bit different. Now, don't misunderstand me. This is not a uh, 
this is not, not you know some kind of hatchet job, some kind of uh, uh, Frankie Schaefer writing about Francis Schaefer. This is all good, all positive uh, things about my father. But there are things other people didn't know that are good that I wanted to honor and praise. Mm -hmm. uh, and when he passed, uh, you know that that was the opportunity I thought for me to to take on that particular job. We you know I knew there was already someone lined up to write a a more standard uh, biography. I don't know where that project is at the moment, but it's being done. Mm -hmm. um, but I wanted to, again, well, let me say this. If there's an overarching theme, if there's a, a central message to the book, I wanted people to see how theology for my father was not something abstract mm. that he had mastered, like a... Uh, I don't know, like a theoretical uh, physicist. Mm -hmm. I wanted people to see that it was just very, very real to him. And there was no division between his theological thought and his life. And so I wanted to show uh, how that theological uh, wisdom was poured into me uh, through the years by him. Yeah. I mean, that's the sense that I got as well, reading through the book. I mean, it was like getting glimpses of, you know, in the house, in the Sproul household, you yes. know, and seeing uh, how they interacted. Because it, it's true. I mean, I, I, I've read uh, The Holiness of God uh, from your father uh, and other different theologians. And you kind of wonder, like, man, I wonder what, you know, it, what is it like in, in the household there? And, and I think... You you presented a, a beautiful picture there of putting basically basically flesh like bringing bringing it to life bringing it to flesh, not just the abstract theology there. Right, and you know, and the goal was you know first to to honor him in that way, but it was also really driven by uh, a deep concern that I've had for a long time that that all of us in general. Uh, if we have an interest in theology, which is you know narrows down the, the church quite a bit, but those who have an interest in theology do tend uh, to to keep it in the abstract, and uh, we we suffer from what I not so delicately call spiritual constipation, <laughs> where where we have all this great biblical doctrine, all this sound theology, all all you know we can quote our Calvin's and our Luthers. Mm -hmm. But our hearts are essentially unchanged, which is just shocking, given given the the beauty of the things that we've learned theologically. Yeah, we, mm. you know, we should be on our knees. We should be praising God. You know, when you when you look around uh, the evangelical church, there's a sense in which we've grown comfortable uh, in living out what Paul described as you know, the church being a body with different parts of the body having different callings and and you know one's part of the evangelical church has the heart and that's not the reformed part unfortunately mm. uh, and another part has the the you know the hands and the feet and that's not the reformed part we tend to see ourselves as the brain of the evangelical church which is a good thing to have but like every, <laughs> every other part it's not good by itself yeah no that makes and perfect so, sense you know again, we we need to to own what we think in the abstract and see the the reality in our lives 
Mm-hmm. So, one of the things, I mean, one of the things that caught me and my attention in, in your writing was how, uh, you know, your your dad, RC, just kind of blended those in, in a manner that was was um, just res- highly respectable, right? Like, here's just this, uh, you know, a theological giant who did not skimp in the least on the brain component, not in the least, right? Uh, but at the same time, puts it together and syncs it up really well with just parental wisdom like that was one of the main takeaways for me like if as i reflect on the book now and i think back like what was kind of one of the main takeaways was just seeing this man who synthesized you know so many beautiful doctrines and theological truths with a a home life that reflected that wisdom right is this a renaissance man of the 21st century but in the home leading his family in devotions and encouraging you on to to think you know god's thoughts after him even as it manifests in your own life um you know, because to your point, right, like the demons believe in shudder, right? It's not just enough to have this intellectual assent to truths, but to have those Absolutely truths mold right. us, right, and shape us. And it mm-hmm. sounds like that's kind of what you're hoping to capture in in your father's, uh, you know, in his legacy. Well, absolutely. And, and what, again, I wanted to capture how he blessed me with that, not just because it's a good thing, but because I needed it. You know, there's an, another sense in which very consciously, uh, this is l- not a book about my f- earthly father. It's a book about my heavenly father. Mm-hmm. It's a book about the grace of God. It begins with God's grace and it ends with God's grace. And it's God's grace all the way in between. And that was part and parcel of his relationship. My father was a man who, who again, not not didn't merely affirm the doctrine of man's total depravity, Mm -hmm. but he knew that he himself and everyone he met was a real sinner and was really dependent on grace, Mm -hmm. and including himself, and that led him to be a profoundly graceful man. Mm. Uh, I was blessed to, uh, uh, what's the right word for it, to write the epitaph mm. on his tombstone mm. yeah and of course i had to give that a great deal of thought and realizing this is going to last a long time and <sighs> and people are going to be seeing this you know maybe for hundreds of years and he'll ask you about it when he sees you again yes that's true yes he'll be like what in the world <laughs> it's like, what uh, did you write that for no. <laughs> no. Um, but i wanted to i wanted to capture him and the gospel in a way that anyone could understand. And so all, all it says is he was a kind man who served a kinder savior. Mm-hmm. Wow. And again, that's, that's my vision. That's my memory. That's my experience. And again, that's what I wanted to, to capture in this book. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, as I was reading it, I was particularly uh, um, int- very interested in what you had said uh, in the beginning of your book about um, God giving parents the role of training their children. And so uh-huh. and that got me thinking, like, I wonder, I wonder what those daily devotions were, you know, were like with uh, with uh, RC, RC, your, your father there. And but it was interesting because in your book you said that uh, your father did not seem to implement any kind of like pro- programmatic form of of discipleship, but more of an organic method. So uh, I have a couple questions regarding that. Like, what did that look like, and how might that be like an encouragement to to young parents, young Christian parents today who 
who are like, man, I don't, I don't have the skills. I don't know how to do this. Like, you know, if like, how do I do it? I mean, what, what would your thoughts be on, on that there? Oh, well, a couple things. Um, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, and organic is a very good word for it. And I would add that, uh, this is actually the, the biblical, uh, model. When mm-hmm. you, when you think about when God instructs parents to instruct their children, he, he, he does it very clearly there in Deuteronomy chapter six. Mm-hmm. And he says that he calls parents to talk with their children of these things. The, the these things are, in my judgment, uh, the answers to the great questions. Who is God? Who am I? And how do we relate? Mm-hmm. And, the, and, he's, and uh, Moses says we're to talk with our children of these things when we lie down and when we rise up, when we walk by the way. And what he's saying there is, it's it's not you know when you lie down, when you rise up, but if you're sitting, mm-hmm. then stop talking about these things. Yeah. <laughs> the whole point is that it that these conversations happen in the milieu of mm-hmm. everyday life, mm-hmm. and again, that's what we went through. Now, one of the things that that touches on answering this question and where we started uh, is, is this: one of the reasons I think people feel afraid is because we start with these abstract theological notions and wanting to be organic where we, we go out and look at the world and say, well, you know, where's my illustration going to come? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, whether it's, you know, gosh, maybe, maybe if, uh, I find, uh, you know, if, if the clover has taken over the backyard, I'll pluck one, <laughs> teach about the Trinity. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Modalism. That's right. That's heresy, Patrick. Exactly. It's a heresy, <laughs> Patrick. I love it. Yeah. So, but the thing about my dad, you know, when you, when you heard him teach and you heard him make the connection between something ordinary that we understood and something transcendent about who God is, you, you people are tempted again to think that he had the abstract idea first, and he looked out across the created order until he could find the perfect analogy and snatched it up and put it in his talk. Mm-hmm. But that is exactly the opposite of what he did and who he was. Mm-hmm. He didn't look for connections, but rather he looked at the world through what he knew and he and and because of that these things you know jumped out at him and were organic they they weren't uh abstract illustrations of abstract thoughts they mm-hmm. he didn't look at the world as god's flannel graph i i, I think i would put it <laughs> this way if i could uh and allude to uh uh both c.s lewis and one of my favorite things he's ever written um in his uh, essay, Myth Became Fact, which is in the God and the Dog collection of essays by C.S. Lewis, uh, Lewis talks about how the, sort of the answer to the objection to Christianity that it's, you know, it's a copy of other religions, mm-hmm. all these other religions have a dying, rising God, and et cetera. And he talks about how, look, you know, our, our first temptation apologetically is to try and emphasize the distinctions between these other ancient religions in the Christian faith and say, well, that that's different because, or we're different than because of this. But what Lewis says is there's two things. One, if the scripture is true, 
And if God made the world, then shouldn't we expect that the world would reflect his story? Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, it, 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 it shouldn't surprise us in the least that even unbelievers who have the remnants of the image of God in their mind are going to be able to some degree to see the world through the lens of what's true. The second thing he says, of course, is that it's it's true. It happened. Mm-hmm. That's why it's myth became fact. Yeah. It's myth in a kind of Carl Jungian mm. archetype, uh, like collective unconscious yeah. truths. That's the first point, but it's mm-hmm. fact in the sense that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate yeah. while Quirinius was governor in you know the region. So, uh, in the same way, you've got to be able to see that the world is God's world. Mm-hmm. And that because of that, it tells God's story. The scripture tells us that. The, the, the world tells God's story. And so when that happens and you have the conversations with your children and, and you impress upon them, you know, another simple thing uh, that I try to do as a father, and, you know, unfortunately, this isn't as common a concept as it should be. But here's a really simple one. One, your children are going to learn more about the gospel by watching you repent, mm. by watching you forgive, mm. than they're going to learn from anything else. Yeah. You yeah. know, so often we parents are afraid that if we repent, we're going to lose our, our standing and our authority. And so we, we cover up our sins. And you know what? That's never a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it never works out well. Uh, so when you go to your child and say, not only to your child, hey, uh, I sinned, but when you say to your child, I've sinned against you, will you forgive me? Mm. Then A, they're going to know, hey, this this repentance and forgiveness thing is for real. And it means something. And so, you know, th- that's just another way to, in a sense, catechize your children in the organic. Yeah. Mm. Wow. That's- you know, it's it, one of the, when there's, when you talk about your, your father's shortcomings in the book they're they're mentioned often because there's not many of them you know t- to mention in in the context of the book that i could find there were a few but they're uh-huh. they're of a different sort than when you kind of describe your own shortcomings i thought which i thought was really interesting there's a great example where our, for example like rc senior botches some latin during a commencement speech which is actually like it's a it's a really humorous <laughs> example if you yes, got to pick up the book check it out it's a great example so but i guess my question here is like along the same thread of what you were just sharing like how did your 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 father's uh, handling of of his own mishaps shape you i mean what were what were some of the ways that that kind of beyond um teachable moments in kind of an organic sense picking out uh an example let's say in nature as you're taking a stroll and see look how look how majestic god is but in in teachable moments and kind of um even in, in in repentance uh, before the family. I know that's something for me I've <laughs> had to do a number of times before my family. And to your point, RC, like that's, that's a, that's a, the gospel is being caught in that moment, right? Where in, in a, in a way that, um, that is not just merely kind of um, taking in information from text, but is actually seeing how it applies in the life of a parent. Um, how, how did that manifest itself in your home and how did that shape you? Well, I, I, I'm not sure how easy it is to answer the question from one particular side of it. I, you know, you, you mentioned that um, 
I don't have a lot of stories where my father's shortcomings are are shown and and you know the one that you list is certainly not a moral shortcoming uh, by any stretch um and honestly when i look back i i think um i don't know that he had many opportunities to repent you know there is a a hard i was a very very late learner of my father's imperfection mm-hmm. like that way it, you know i like very late decades late mm-hmm. uh to come to learn oh he's not he's not perfect but i will tell you this that that i definitely had the lesson of forgiveness from him mm-hmm. my father was never a man who was slow to forgive he was never a man who held uh, a grudge. Um, you know, I he would discipline me, but those dis- that those discipline moments were never moments where his love for me uh, sort of became overshadowed or or was even necess- you know maybe gone for a time, mm-hmm. and then you know days later it came back. It was never like that. And that was something uh, that I tried to follow in raising my own children, that that even when we're in a place where I need to discipline them, uh, I need to do it, one, calmly and peacefully. And two, uh, you know, I, 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 I tell them, I am not disciplining you to even the scales of justice. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the retributive justice is a perfectly good thing, and it's a bad uh, sort of liberal idea that wants to downplay it. I, I believe in it, yeah, heartedly. That said, I also believe that for every believer, that's already been met 2,000 yeah. years ago. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, mm-hmm. So when I'm disciplining my own children, I'm, I'm telling them this is rehabilitative discipline, not retributive discipline. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dad does this because Dad loves you, and Dad wants things to go well for you. Dad wants you to be blessed. Yeah. Um, and you know, Dad, Dad never stops loving you, and that was again something very, very clear uh, in my own life. I'm sure also in my sister's life as we were growing up, I, you never had to be afraid that my dad would, uh, stay angry at you. Wow. And in fact, like, um, as you were talking about that, I was thinking about what another thing that you mentioned in your book regarding, um, you, you said there were several periods of of, of rebellion or so in your life. Um, uh, you mentioned growing long hair as a right. desire not to be a cookie cutter kid. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then also uh, taking more of the position of the cynic, being more yes. cynical. And, uh, and, I, and I, it was neat to see how your father responded to that. And I know that um, a lot of parents who read this book or, or think about these things are going to be like, yeah, I mean, every, every child is, is going to go through that period. And as parents, we kind of like, like I have young children, eight, five, and three. And I, I kind of dread like, ooh, man, what's it going to be like when they get older and that happens? How am I going to respond to that? Um, so I, I just kind of wonder, like, h- how did your father respond to those periods of, of rebellion? Um, and maybe what the thoughts or advice you, would you give to parents who are going through that today? 
Well, it's interesting. Now that I think about the, those those two stories, the long hair and the cynicism, it just kind of dawned on me that at least the initial reaction in both instances were were rather distinct. That is, uh, the long hair, he was clearly uh, hurt mm-hmm. and took it as a personal affront. And um, that is, by the way, one of my favorite stories in the book because <laughs> – I got such a, uh, a a logical thrashing. Uh, it, you know, he eventually calmed down, but he still crushed my position uh, like a worm. So, but in the other one, the cynicism one, he he was very careful to not shame me, not embarrass me, and to appeal uh, to the things that that he knew mattered to me. Now. And you know that was a, a very good, uh, strong gift of his to to not to to correct in a way that gave you sort of just the right amount of embarrassment or shame. Not mm-hmm. not an embarrassment or shame that that defeats you, mm-hmm. but an embarrassment or shame that inspires you. If I can make that distinction. Yeah, yeah. So he would say, you know, uh, well, get another story in there uh, that illustrates that was. Um, the story of when I was a boy and used to, you know, throw these temper tantrums mm. on the baseball field because I, you know, mess up a play or strike out or or boot a ground ball or something, and and my dad disciplined me uh, quickly and easily. He just, I, I mentioned in the book, it happened so often that it it basically had a simple liturgy. <laughs> I'd boot a ground ball, I'd start, you know, fuming and and throwing my glove on the ground and my father would just point to the house, which meant, you know, <laughs> you're done, go home, you know, point to the house. hit the showers, boy. Uh, <laughs> but one time in, a, in a, a private conversation while he and I were just having a catch, he, he said to me, son, the, you know, the reason you do that is because, I mean, first he said, you know why you do that? And I thought, yeah, I do that because I'm mad. <laughs> and he said, well, uh, but the re- what you're really trying to do is to communicate to everybody around you that this is an unusual thing, mm-hmm. that it's surprising and shocking that you that you did this. And the thing is, son, it's not surprising and shocking because you're still learning. You know, you're not a major league baseball player. You're a seven year old kid, yeah. and seven year old kids boot ground balls, and um, and that, there's nothing wrong with that. What's wrong is when you act like you're better than you are. You're not a 14-year-old kid who shouldn't boot a ground ball. You're a seven-year-old kid who should. And so you need to. What you're trying to do is communicate to people that you're really good at baseball when you're really not good at baseball. Again, that's that's the level of, wow. I, I've been trying to fake people out. I've been trying to fool people. Yeah. Not trying to earn a reputation for being a ball player but trying to cheat my way to a reputation for being a good ball player. And then what does that do? At that level, you don't get crushed and go home and say, I'm done with sports. You say, well, I'm going to work hard to learn how to do this, and I'm going to learn to be a good sport. Mm. Uh, I'm going I'm to learn to to not be shocked when I fail. And how much more does that then apply again in our own sin? Yeah. We want to be careful not to be complacent in our sin, but we, we shouldn't be shocked by it. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's it's what we do. <laughs> it's sort of part of that uh, contemporary Christian song. It's who we are. Yeah. Uh, 
that's true. Uh, it, it shouldn't stun us or shock us. It should inspire us to work harder, uh, to be more faithful and to be more diligent. And, and, and to do that in the context of knowing we're loved. You know, my dad wasn't saying, I'm disgusted at you because you throw these tantrums. Mm-hmm. My dad was coaching me out of them. And that made me want to come out of them and do better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so good. And I, and I love the connection there, right, with with sin and forgiveness and how he's modeling that for you. Like so there's there's an early chapter in the book where you reflect on sin as cosmic treason. And you talk about the, you know, the blessing of kind of being raised, un, raised under your dad's tutelage and this being an example of that. Um, you know, there's this learning more and more about God's word, this hunger to dig deeper and learn more. And you say that's a good thing, right? It's nothing grander, nothing more sublime that we could ever learn about. But then you make this point, which I thought was just so helpful. You said, the, the problem is that sometimes we're so eager to believe more information that we forget the critical importance of believing more down to our toes, the information we already have. Um, that's, I, I just was, I was struck by that. Like what you say, we're resistant to the truth to hit a home run in all its soul crushing power that I am a sinner, hit, hits home in all its soul crushing power. I'm a sinner. I was conceived in iniquity. I am a cosmic rebel. It's, it reminds me of, so there's the hymn, Tell Me the Old, Old Story. And, uh-huh. you know, we want to say, I, I know the old story. Thank you very, like, I've heard it a thousand yes. times. I don't need <laughs> well, it, right? Well, cool. <laughs> but, but what that risks and what I think you're, you bring out so beautifully in that imagery is, is missing precisely that. We, we need that old story again. We need the gospel preached to us again. And to your point, that that kind of brings out uh, something in, you know, the, the, the Holy Spirit kind of working in us and, and, and through your dad in that moment to make us kind of want to do better. Yes, absolutely. That's, and that's uh, certainly a, a conviction that I would hold to, that, that it is precisely uh, a deeper grasp of our need for God's grace, a deeper gratitude for the provision of God's grace that actually uh, fuels uh, a deeper desire to be more obedient to God. Mm. Yeah. Um, and speaking of that obedience to God, I mean, uh, you described in the book how you had a variety of, of interests and plans for your career growing up, you know, a truck driver, a <laughs> uh, lumberjack. And, and it, but it seems that, and, I, and, and this is always my struggles with, and I struggle with this too as a father. Like, you know, it's like I, I want certain things for my children, I want them to do certain things. Um, but you're, it seems like your father took more of a hands off, a laissez faire approach to, to the development of your career aspirations. So, uh, you know, kind of a couple of questions here, but like what led you to want to pursue the ministry that you're pursuing versus some other uh, calling? And did your father provide like nudges or hints regarding what he may or may not have wanted you to do? Uh, okay, I can answer that pretty pretty well. It's it's not really covered in the book, but the, it, and it's not too terribly uh, what's the word for it uh, spiritual. Mm-hmm. Um, but my father did actually discourage me when I was very young um, from following in his footsteps, and mm. uh, just because of the, the the pain inherent in the work, it's just I. I I used to tell uh, when I would go travel to different churches and I would tell the congregation, you know, the hardest thing about being your pastor that your, that your pastor goes through isn't, uh, you know, the low pay, but if you can fix that, fix that, <laughs> you know, the hardest thing is not the uh, long hours, but you know, if you have a theological 
question at 11 o'clock at night on, on Saturday, try to wait until <laughs> after the service. Don't call him right then. Let the, let the man have a, a good night's sleep. Really, the, at the end of the day, the hard thing about being a pastor is that you love your sheep and you watch them destroy themselves. Ooh, yeah. You watch them harm themselves and it just crushes you. And I know my father, you know, felt a great deal of that weight as well, and he wanted me to be spared that weight. Well, ab about the time that I was uh, starting high school, I developed a, a strong, strong interest in uh, economics. Hmm. And um, my actually my freshman year in college, my dad tricked me into <laughs> writing my first book. I mean, he really did. He, he called me up. <laughs> I was in the dorm, and he called me up, and he said, son, uh, you know, do you think you could write a 15-page paper on how the Bible looks at profit? P-R-O-F-I-T, huh. not P-H-E-T. <laughs> yeah. I said, yeah, I, I could probably do that. And he said, okay, well, do you think you could do a 15-page paper on inflation, on devaluing and debasing money? I said, yeah, I could do that. He said, how about a 15-page a paper on, on unemployment? Could you do that? And I said, yeah, I had no idea where he was going. He he went so far as to say, do you think you could do 10 of these? <laughs> 10 of these? <laughs> yeah, and I said, well, if I had enough time, yeah, I could do 10 of these, I suppose. And he said, well, I think that's what you need to do this summer as your job. And I still didn't know what he was talking about. <laughs> he said, and because when you were done with that, you'd have a book. Wow. And so he got me to believe that I could write a book, hmm. you know, <laughs> as a, you know, coming out of my freshman year of college. And that's what I did that summer. And the book came out uh, my senior year. Oh, nice. And it's been in print ever since. <laughs> um, wow. So that was really uh, one of the ways that he encouraged me. And I talk in the book about it didn't matter what stupid idea I came up with about what I should do. He was always very, very encouraging mm -hmm. and always thinking again about how to give me a, a, a leg up. You know, who do I know in that industry? Who, you know, who do I know who knows someone in that industry? Didn't matter what it was. He was very eager to be uh, supportive, but unfortunately that didn't give a lot of direction. So I, I did bounce around a lot of different places. Yeah. Now, I ended up developing great interest in writing as well and wanted to be a writer. I, I wanted to study economics about the same time as when I developed an interest in theology, mm. but I, I didn't see myself as a pastor. I, I, I just wanted to, to learn it all really well. Mm -hmm. um, I ended up, after college, uh, going to law school. That was sort of the, mm -hmm. if you you know, were reasonably intelligent and were a liberal arts major and didn't want to starve to death, that was the next thing you did. You went to <laughs> law <true>. school. <laughs> and uh, I lasted all of six weeks in law school. It took me that long to figure out this is not what I want to do. This is not what I want to be. It wasn't anything like what I thought it was going to be like. Mm. Um, and then from there, I went on to graduate school in English and uh, at the University of Mississippi. And I got to teach freshman English while I was a student. I loved that. But I also began to see, you know, my whole perspective uh, is, as a believer, is radically at odds with the, the entire industry. In fact, I got called in by the uh, chairman of the English department 
who basically told me, you know, that my insistence on objective right and wrong, objective true and false, objective beauty, uh, just wouldn't fit in the profession. So by this time, I'm now uh, 0 for 2 in graduate school, and I thought, well, I do know a lot of theology. I bet I can crank out one of those. And so <laughs> I enrolled in, uh, at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando yes. and got a job working with Ligonier Ministries. <clears throat> and after uh, six months of, of taking orders over the phone for videotapes, people used to, when they find out they're calling Ligonier and they got me taking their orders, they want to know what I did wrong. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um that's when I started working on Table Talk, and that was a magazine, which was just a great opportunity to uh, combine uh, my interest in writing and language uh, with theology. And I really, really loved working on Table Talk. I served as the editor-in-chief for 11 years. Uh, during that process, one day I was in my office thinking about something, grumbling and complaining to myself <laughs> about the church. And uh, I don't know if it was immediately the Holy Spirit, but I, I sort of asked myself this question. Uh, if you think it's so easy, why don't you try it? <laughs> <laughs> and that's when I uh, began to pursue uh, serving as a pastor. And uh, uh, not long after that, I, I moved uh, to rural Virginia from Orlando and started mm -hmm. a ministry there and planted a church. and. Uh, stayed there until I came back down to Orlando to uh, help open up Reformation Bible College. Oh, nice. Very nice. So, yeah. so how, how did, uh, just out of curiosity, if your, your dad had tried to, you know, kind of guide you away from that direction, like how did he, how did that go when, when you began kind of moving towards the pastorate formally? Like, oh, I think he liked it. He liked I, it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think he, deep down, he liked deep it. Down. <laughs> I, I mentioned in passing in the book, uh, this, uh, reality that for my first three semesters in seminary, I actually lived at home and uh, typically worked, you know, from eight to nine, either working or in class uh, every day. And then when I would get home at night at nine o'clock, uh, I would go out on the porch and my dad and I, with my mom there, usually we would have a debriefing every day in which we'd talk about uh, the things that I learned in class, or the, you know, the, and he really enjoyed that. Of course, I also had him for just about every class he took or taught. <laughs> nice. Well, not just about for every class he taught, I had him, and of course, uh, some of the uh, events in those classes ended up in the book as well. Yeah, yeah, I remember that uh, reading about that. Um, you know, all this, all this while we've been, we've been, and the, and the whole purpose of the book, we've been talking about uh, basically putting skin on on the theology. Um, the part of the book that I can honestly say it was the most moving part of the book, uh, and you know, brought me you know tears to my eyes, was when you described what had happened uh, with your daughter Shannon, and, uh -huh. and the condition that had happened, and 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 everything that that surrounded that, and you know, I just I was just thinking about you know. Uh, this you know the, the the we live in a sinful world and there's tragedy all around us and brokenness and death and disease and all kinds of stuff, and it's like that is one of the fundamental uh, questions that you know Christianity has to be able to answer. Our faith has to be able to to talk about um, this uh, this sinful evil world that we live in. Um, and when you 
shared that you know you would explain to your father what had been going on with with Shannon, uh, what was happening, and this he said to you, "Now is the time to believe what you have always believed." Like that really hit me, and that uh, that struck me, and that that moved me deeply because there's such it's just such a a beautiful truth. I mean, that's where the rubber meets the road. That's where um, the Christian. Our theology uh, really hits reality. So, I mean, can you unpack that statement and talk about the the beauty behind it and the truth of it and how it impacted you? Well, I I can, but you already did a really good job of it. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> and I appreciate that. And you know, it it really is uh, encouraging to me to hear you say that because it it's it's means the message is is coming through and mm-hmm. and having an impact and it really does go back to what we've already talked about it goes back to that uh, other quote about uh you know we're so eager to believe more but mm-hmm. we're not so good at believing what we already believe more more deeply more mm-hmm. powerfully and and that's what that message is about the now is the time to believe what we've always believed means now is the time for you to cling to to hope in to rest in to find comfort in mm-hmm. this idea that you have abstractly uh, affirmed and in my context that you've abstractly uh, defended, you've abstractly taught. Mm. Now is the time for you to own it. Yeah. Now is the time for you to 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 make it uh, your foundation. And um, it's interesting. I I didn't get to tell much of Shannon's story. Yeah. In that chapter, the, I, I do have a whole chapter devoted to Shannon in my book, The Call to Wonder. Uh huh. Um, and in that chapter, I, I, I get to talk about how, while Shan, while while the fear of uh, Shannon's homegoing, while the pain of Shannon's pain uh, was real, the life of caring for a child with profound disabilities was not a hardship it was mm. a joy mm. you know when, when you find out you have this little baby and you find out she's n- never gonna speak or she's never going to uh feed herself and mm. you and you just think you know it's unalloyed tragedy mm. and then you actually feed her and then you get to have her communicate to you with her face and with her smiles instead of with words and then you get to see uh, a life unburdened with uh, not not unburdened with sin I'm not the nine total depravity but mm-hmm. you know the less complicated you are as a person the simpler and plainer your sins are and so she I mean she was just a, a very godly little girl and uh, we used to call her princess happy because she was just so so smiley all the time. And so she really was uh, a, a great blessing. And, you know, I didn't really, as long as she was alive, I didn't have to gird up my loins and, and you know, be ready for Job's hardships. It was just a blessing. Mm-hmm. I, I want to, just a slight, slight pivot here. One of the things that you talk about in your book is you, you talk through an example where your, your dad kind of helpfully distinguished wisdom from knowledge. Um, 
and that was another part of the book that I just thought was tremendously helpful. Um, could you share a little bit about kind of how he uh, and, and you would kind of distinguish wisdom and knowledge and kind of maybe talk through what, what application that distinction might have for us today? Absolutely. Uh, but first, I got to tell the story. <laughs> yes. It's a good one. <laughs> um, if I remember correctly, that's the, that's the story that that begins with uh, me going into my father's study. Mm-hmm. And uh, in his study, he literally had uh, floor-to-ceiling shelves, bookshelves, uh, on every wall in the room. I mean, wow. there, there was not a bare spot to hang a picture anywhere in the room. <laughs> wow. And, you know, and, and I, I talk about my respect and admiration for my father, my desire to want to be like him, and sort of having this idea that uh, so many of his gifts must come out of all of these books. And so I went in there, and it's more than one occasion, but I, I go in there and I would just slowly do a 360 just just a few inches at a time turning and scanning those books i didn't mention this in the book either but i often got sent to sleep in my father's study because we often had students or guests and my bedroom was the guest bedroom mm-hmm. and i would get sent to sleep on in, in the study and would often just you know read the titles uh, you know, to, while I'm not wanting to go to sleep yet. <laughs> but so now I'm a few years older and I'm spinning around and I'm just looking at this book and that book and that book and that book and wanting to find the, the source of wisdom. And I, I pick out two very thin books that are written by a guy whose name I'd heard of, who's almost universally respected as far as I know by the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, the books were Civilization and its Discontents and the Interpretation of Dreams, both by Sigmund Freud. Freud, yeah. And I took them upstairs into my bedroom and started reading them. And when it was time for me to go to bed, I grabbed my flashlight and I got underneath the covers and I started reading, uh, you know, or continued to read uh, after Lights Out. Well, after a few days of this, at some point, my mother discovers uh, <laughs> these books. Uh, you know, maybe between the mattress and the box spring, I'm not sure. Um, and at the time, you know, my my grades at school are are good, but not great. They're not as good as they should be. They're not matching my abilities. Mm-hmm. And so. My dad begins with, you know, what, what in the world? Why are you, why are you, why can't you be bothered to read your assignments for school, but you're up there reading with a flashlight this Freud stuff? <laughs> and so, you know, like any other kid, I'm trying to to turn this uh, embarrassing situation into something in my own defense, and so I, you know, break into this speech about how, you know. At school, they want to they want to give you knowledge, and that I want to get wisdom, and that's why I'm reading this stuff, and why I don't care about the stuff from school. <laughs> and you know, my father, as I mentioned, look, you know, he could have said, "Oh, it's a great thing that you want to have wisdom, son," um, but he 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 managed to not again not to embarrass me, but to tell me that. 
to explain to me the necessity of knowledge to wisdom. It's knowledge is necess, necessary for wisdom, not sufficient for wisdom. You can't have wisdom without knowledge, but you can't have knowledge without wisdom. And so to to downplay the value of knowledge is going to hurt my uh, acquisition of wisdom. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he, this, this theme, I mean, that particular event actually happened. That per- I mean, they all do in the, everything I said that happened in the book happened. But my point is that theme came up multiple times. There was one conversation like that, but that theme came up multiple times where, again, he reminded me, uh, it, it, it's, it's a good thing for me to know things. Now, uh, I, I mentioned also in the book, in the chapter uh, that tells the story of when my father was so sickly during a conference that people were just walking out of the venue in tears because they just thought he's not going to make it through the night. And the next morning he came back, he'd been he'd gotten some treatment and he came back like he was 20 years younger and gave this amazing talk on uh, unbelieving worldviews and I talk about how I'm sitting there listening to it so excited to see him reinvigorated and then starting to get mad thinking how in the world is he giving this talk like it's no problem it's so easy for him and this particular talk is pretty much just following the same pattern of my book tearing down strongholds how dare he (laughs) stage and give my book as his talk and by God's grace, uh, that misconception didn't last real long because I, I realized, wait a minute, where did you learn this? I mean, literally, this particular book, it deals with uh, logical positivism and behaviorism mm-hmm. and naturalism and nihilism. All the isms. <laughs> pragmatism and yeah, all these isms. And there's literally not a single footnote in the entire book. And... I realized, well, the reason there's not a footnote in the entire book is because everything in here is something I heard my dad say. Hmm. And that's why this this lecture he's giving, he's not giving my book. My book is giving giving his lectures. Exactly. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And it it happened and it worked because, and this also goes to the sort of the organic thing. My father's mind and my mind – just operate very similarly mm. so that everything that came out of him, it, it wasn't, I, I didn't have to shove it into its right place. It mm. was like a, like a, a machine that builds a brick wall and it does so where everything's plumb and even and level. And, and that's exactly how, you know, I learned from him and, and learned to sort of uh, shorten the, uh, the binding that brings knowledge and wisdom together mm-hmm. to never be satisfied with mere knowledge, but also to see that knowledge uh, is the, the foundation or the root of the wisdom. So I need them both. Yeah. Amen. And, and, and in, in, as you kind of, I know we're going stretching a bit beyond the confines of the book per se, but as you kind of look out on, uh, evangelicalism broadly in the con- in the, the American context in which you know we live, um, you know what are what are some ways that you know we can 
uh, apply that distinction and kind of learn from that distinction afresh. I mean, we we were talking earlier about you know um, how the the reformed wing of evangelicalism kind of tends to be the mind. Um, you know, what are what are some ways that we can kind of lean into uh, that that wisdom in a, in a broader sense um, and well, and kind of grasp some of, the, some of the hand and heart and feet. Yes, that's a very good way to put it, and that's also the name of my friend David Murray's. Uh, blog hands heart feet and mm. I, I and I think the answer to that is um, in essence something we, we've already talked about that that knowledge is the doctrine of man's total depravity wisdom yeah. is beating your breast and saying Lord be merciful to me mm. a sin mm. Now, if you are running around and someone has put uh, Pelagianism in your head, or semi-Pelagianism in your head, or or Finneyism in your head, and you you or, or again you've grown deep from the wisdom of the world, and you believe that we are basically good, uh, you've got bad knowledge that's not going to lead you to wisdom. But if you've got yeah. the biblical doctrine of total depravity in your head, you can stop there. And have the knowledge, or you could go and say, "What does this mean to me?" Uh, that meeting I mentioned that I was at this morning was uh, talking about a Sunday school class that I'm wanting to teach, and in the context of this conversation, um, I I talked about I want to teach a class uh, called uh, "How to Read the Bible hmm. and Find Yourself There." And I talked about how when we come to the Bible, if you're looking for information, and again, in the Reformed world, we, we tend to see the Bible as a proof text mine. We, we start with our systematics or our Westminster Confession, and the function of the Bible is to uh, find texts to hang our doctrines on. It's, it's almost as if we look at the Bible as if it's... Uh, uh, you know, like that, the food you get in uh, through the mail. I forget what those companies are called, but they oh, yeah. different, different companies where you sign up and they send you a box full of food and you cook it. And <laughs> so the Bible is this box full of food, and our systematics or our Westminster Confession—that's the finished meal. Mm. And so the Bible is really good and it's really healthy, but it needs to be finished. It needs to be combined and cooked and heated so that you get for the real thing. That's terrible. Mm -hmm. It's just awful. Now, you know, understand I'm a professor of systematic theology. I, I, I believe in systematic theology. But again, I want to understand what God says about me. Mm -hmm. I want to know on, on uh, family relationships. I want to know what God says about my wife. Mm -hmm. I want to know what God says. You know, when I, when I am studying Jesus in the church, I have to be asking what am I doing uh, like Jesus towards my wife? How am I failing towards my wife? Mm. You know, this is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to ask the question. Now, what we, again, in broader evangelical worlds, we're all wild and crazy about application. Yeah. But what we're applying typically is our weak, lame sauce uh, understanding of the message of the Bible. The broad evangelical church thinks that the message of the Bible is be nice. Yeah. And so every application is, well, in this context, here's how you be nice. Here's how you be nice. In that context, here's how you be nice. And that's not the message of the Bible. 
Yeah. Just like all the immoralisms and whatnot. It, yes. It's so it's and and what's what's interesting about that too is like if you think back, you know, if looking at the Puritan heritage or you know the Westminster divines who themselves are crafting you know the confession and they're 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 yeah. doing just the opposite, right? They're they're they have the text, oh, they my, have scripture, yes. I mean, right? You know, and, honestly, I'll tell you a story. I was the first time I ever taught through the shorter catechism. Yeah. I thought to myself, well. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to bridge this gap. I'm gonna have to to put some flesh and bones on this abstract thing. And honestly, all I did was expose the fact that I hadn't read it well before then, because <laughs> there's lots of flesh and bones. Not only are these the same people yeah. who write these great big books full of flesh and bones, but the confession and the catechism themselves have bones. That's yep. true. Yeah. You know, I'll make, I, I do, I, I confess, I do make fun of question four that <laughs> asks the question, what is God, instead of asking the question, who is God? Oh, God? yeah, yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> um, <laughs> but nevertheless, they are, they are so much better than we are at, at that full, rounded, organic, uh, relational reality. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's one of the things. Like, I don't like I don't hear in in anything that you're saying, kind of like a knocking of of systematics, right? I think what and, and similarly, like with or, or a knocking of the formal study of theology. I mean, it, you know, even looking at you know the, the the heritage of of your own dad, right? It's it's the blending of them, right? Where you have yes. where you have mind in conjunction with hand, feet, heart, um, and that's that synthesis is is a beautiful thing. And what I hear in your story is a jealousy to guard that that synthesis. Um, Absolutely right, and to uh, honor my father for living it out. Yeah, amen. And I think that you that you do that very well in your book. Um, I, I commend the book. I, I I encourage our listeners, please, to. Uh, get a hold of this book. I mean, uh, it's been a wonderful conversation, R.C., and our time has just flown by, uh, which is just, uh, hey, that's what happens when you get in a good conversation. Uh, yeah, but before we close, though, I do want to ask, I mean, where can uh, where can folks get a copy of your book? Is it Amazon? And will an audio version be made of it? Uh, it's definitely at Amazon. Uh, I'm not sure where my publisher is on a audio version. I do know that uh, the last I checked, Amazon does not have the Kindle or ebook version, but that is coming. Okay. Um, and you, you can get it. You can pre-order it now if it's not out yet. It depends on when you know you're when people are listening to this. It's yeah. It's uh, nine days as we're recording. Nine days from when the book will be released. So you can either pre-order it or order it. Yeah. Um, or you can also get it from the publisher, which is Ichthus. I C H T H U S publications.com either mm-hmm. place. Uh, they'll, they'll be happy to take your order. Yeah, I know. Again, uh, yeah. So uh, I completely commend the, the book growing up with RC, uh, by RC Sproul Jr. And, uh, again, RC, I really appreciate you coming on the show today, uh, and pouring your heart out and, 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 and helping us to see, uh, your father in a different light, not a worse light, better, different light if that makes any sense at all (laughs) absolutely guys thank you very much for having me uh it's always fun for me to talk about my dad and and also to talk about this book and i've enjoyed my time with you all right well 
Excellent. Well, yeah. yeah, thank you. So, so so the book out there is Growing Up with R.C., Truths I Learned About Grace, Redemption, and the Holiness of God. Uh, R.C., thank you again for joining us, and we look forward to maybe having you back at some point and hearing more about whatever you have in the works for, for round two. Terrific. Yeah. Perfect. Thank so, you so much. Yeah, this will be uh, this is two guys in the Bible. Um, uh, Eric Lupold, Dylan Keniston, and for those of you who are listening, uh, you can reach us at two guys in the Bible podcast at gmail That's the number two guys in the Bible podcast at gmail We're also on Twitter. Well, I guess Dylan will be on Twitter, not me so much because I don't really use Twitter <laughs> at two guys in the Bible. And then we're on Facebook as well, two guys in the Bible. So again, thank you, RC, and uh, for everyone else listening, take care and God bless. God bless.